Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. I particularly want you to just reread over the, the six commandments that we read at the end of the ten that govern our relationships with one another. God commands us to honor our parents, not to murder, commit adultery, steal, give false testimony, or covet. If you're just looking at those six, I wonder which one you think our society thinks it's okay to break. Or maybe closer to home, in our churches, in your own Christian walk, which has become what you might not say, but actually functionally is the respectable sin. The one that's just become a bit every day. I mean, it's not a happy discussion topic, is it? But I think you could make a good argument for it being the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. We breathe a culture that's become so used to people lying that we just assume most people are lying at least some of the time. Uh, In one sense, it's too easy an illustration to go to politics, but many of you are already thinking of some of the examples. I mean, just in the last, what are we now, 10 months or so, we've had elected officials uh, in the U.S., who have built their entire CV on lies. We're so used to politicians lying to stay in office that now there's an entire industry of fact-checkers because we just take it for granted that when key speeches are made, people won't always tell the truth. And of course, it's not limited to Parliament. Uh, Many of you are connected to university, you work there, you're studying there. Um, I went to university when we just moved from the quill to the pen. Uh, But for you lot, using technology all the time, there are so many thousands of students who plagiarize in their essays that universities now run anti-plagiarism software on any written assignments that you submit. And everybody's taking that to another level now because artificial intelligence is enabling people to use ChatGBT and all sorts of other things to write the most phenomenal essays. So universities around the country, around the world, are having to pour more and more money to make sure that students aren't lying about work that they've stolen from somebody else actually being their own work. Why are they doing it? Because there's just... And an, an assumption, unfortunately a truth, that thousands of students are going to lie about their own work. We, we could go on and on and on with all of the examples because lying's everywhere. 
Lying's everywhere out there because lying comes from every one of us in here. And that can become so normal that it shapes the way that we think even as Christians. So I wonder if there's been a point in your life when you have genuinely thought, is it really a problem for me to tell a white lie? The one where you're saying it without intending to hurt anybody to protect them or whatever it might be. Or, or more specifically, you might have thought, is it really a problem for me to lie if my goal is to protect somebody or help somebody else? Or given that everybody's doing it, is it really a problem at all because everybody knows that everybody's doing it? <laughs> Do you see how relevant this commandment is? But the commandment's not just important because it's culturally relevant. Um, what I want to do before we dig into the detail of verse 16 is, is take a step back and think about what's going on with all of the commandments. Uh, and what we're going to do now is relevant to all of them, but it's perhaps particularly helpful for us to take this step back when we come to the ninth commandment. You see, sitting behind all of the ten commandments is the reality that they show us something of the nature and the character of God. He alone is the one true God, which is why we are to worship and obey him alone. He is the giver and the sustainer of life, which is why it's such a horrendous thing for any to commit murder. He is a faithful, promise-making, promise-keeping God, which is why it is so sinful for any of us to commit adultery. So all the way that we've worked through these commandments, God's growing our understanding of what it means to be made and redeemed in his image. And that's, that's the rock-bottom foundation for the ninth commandment. That is the ultimate answer to why lying is against God's moral law. We're going to look at five things this morning. The first one is this. God's people are to reflect the truthfulness of God himself. I don't know what um, an idea of God you have in your mind. And in one sense, it's a hard question to ask, isn't it? Particularly if you're only beginning to learn about the God of the Bible. Because everything else in our life has been shaped by our own mind and our own understanding. And God's beyond all of that. We can't see him. He is greater than everything that we know. The Bible tells us from beginning to end that our God is truthful all the time, in everything. And that's a wonderful thing to know. Because it means when you come to open your Bible, you can believe every single word in it. Here are four verses to just remind you of how much of a theme this is as you go through the Bible. Numbers 23, 19. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Titus 1, verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Hebrews 6, verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Do you see the theme of how 
God's truthfulness is not only the consistent message of the whole of the Bible, but it's a good thing for us. It means that at any point as we read God's word, we have complete confidence that this is truth. Wherever you look in our societies today, how desperately do we need that objective standard? That measure that cannot ever waver because it is rooted in the truthful character of God. But all of that shapes the way we think about the ninth commandment. We're going to see that there are very specific ways in which this commandment speaks to how God is going to protect us personally and how this commandment protects us as a people. But at its most essential, and in one sense most glorious, the ninth commandment is rooted in the fact that we are image bearers of an always truthful God. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he tells the Ephesian Christians, he tells us today, that we are to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And part of that means that we are to speak truthfully because we are the children of an always truthful father. And then when Paul's writing to the Colossians, he, he, he strengthens this connection between who God is and how we're to speak. So he says in Colossians 3, don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. What's so important? What is so different about the new self? The new self is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So God's people must never lie because we have been made and redeemed in the image of one who never lies. You see, lying is not just a problem because it breaks one of the commandments. Though that would be horrendous and terrible enough. In one sense, if, if I can put it in quotes, if that were the only problem, that problem would still be so significant that the Son of God would have to come and die as a substitute in our place. But lying is an even bigger problem than that. Because as God's people, we have been made to reflect His always truthful character. In the world. See how big a problem lying is? Now we're going to look at the commandment and what it means. We've got that context. And we're going to come back to that context at the end. But now we're going to work through the very specific detail of this commandment. We're on Mount Sinai, which is where God gives these commandments to God's people. And let's start with a very specific focus in verse 16. And then we'll see how that ripples out all the way through the Bible. Point number two, God's people must always speak the truth in court. Look at verse 16. Uh, the commandment doesn't say that you shall not lie. It says you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. If you translate it very woodenly in the Hebrew, which is not always a helpful thing to do, you have to take the phrase as well, but very woodenly it would say something like you shall not be a lying witness against your neighbor. So remember uh, where we are in God's plan of redemptive history. He has just saved this people, this growing people, from Egypt. 
And he is bringing them out to a new place. Sinai is where he's given them the law, but he's got somewhere else that he's going to take them to. And he's giving them these commandments, not just as a set of kind of private rules for personal holiness. These commandments are providing the foundation for them to build a society that will be faithful to him. In fact, he's building the foundation here for a legal system that is going to protect his people as they obey all of his law. Just, just try and think for a minute how, how completely different the world would have been for Moses three and a half thousand years ago or so. M- Moses can't rely on DNA evidence. He can't speak to a forensic scientist about fingerprints. He can't turn to some CTTV recordings and work out what happened. If there is to be a foundation for this society to be able to live alongside one another, to deal deal with disputes that come up, to resolve conflict when that happens, to be able to discern truth where there are parties who are warring against one another, there has to be a rock-solid foundation of integrity. And if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to resolve any of the other problems that come when any of God's people break any of the other commandments. You see, if if you can't trust anybody, you can't trust the legal system, and therefore any sense of cohesion and structure and community is just going to get destroyed and you're going to end up with anarchy. That's how fundamentally important truthful testimony is, both to protect people individually, but also for the the functioning of society at large. And that's going to be vital for God's people, Not, not just at Sinai, but also because he's preparing his people to then be a community in the promised land that he's going to take them to. So this commandment happens at a specific point in time. It's revealing to us something of the glory of who God is, but it's also preparing the people very um, functionally. It's giving them a jurisprudence, if you're a law student, a theory of law that helps them know how they're going to live as people in his new place. God's plan is that his people in the old covenant were going to live differently. In fact, they were going to live so differently in the way they did everything, the way that they worshipped, the way that they rested, the way that they behaved with one another, that the idea was they would become like a magnet to the surrounding nations who would look on and see a people who treated one another and worshipped a God they couldn't see in a way that was completely different to all of the other nations. One of my mates um, in ministry, he, he did his PhD on the missional nature of ethics, meaning the way that Christians live has an evangelistic component. Part of the way that God has designed his people to live is that they would be so different that they would draw others to himself. And all of that is helping us see that this commandment applies more broadly than just the courtroom. If we're to speak truthfully to reflect God's image, if we're to speak truthfully in a way that protects ourselves individually and ourselves as a people, and doing so draws other people to see the Lord Jesus Christ for himself, then surely 
this commandment applies much more broadly than that. And that's the pattern that we've seen as we've gone all the way through the commandments, isn't it? Every time we've got to one of these negative commandments that begins, you shall not, we've seen that God's doing something very deliberate there. He takes the worst case scenario of that particular cluster of sin and uses that as the example in all of its shocking horror to help us grasp the truth of that particular principle. So when it comes to our relationships with one another, seventh commandment, what is the worst thing that any of us could do with one another? It is to betray all of the promises that are made in different marriages, all of the integrity that God calls us to as men and women, and commit adultery. It's the worst thing you could do to one another in our relationships. But that's, not, that's the worst case at the finish line. That, that commandment then also tells us that we're not to take any step towards that journey, which is why when Jesus is speaking to the Jewish uh, lawyer in the New Testament, the, the lawyer says to him, well, whom should I love? And Jesus is explaining all of that to him. And Jesus is so clear. Sorry, I'm imagining two stories in my mind. Uh, Jesus is so clear that when it comes to how we are not to break the commandment not to commit adultery, we're not even to think lustfully in our hearts. We're not to take even the first step in our heads to go down towards that journey. Now, the same is true when it comes to lying. What's so bad about giving false testimony against your neighbor when you see it in the context of the courtroom? Well, what happens if you do that in Old Testament Israel? You've let a dispute get to such an extreme position that you are dragging a fellow member of the covenant community into court and are prepared to lie about them, which in a Jewish judicial system means they will either lose their property, lose their reputation, or lose their lives. See how serious that is? You see how much of an abomination that is? When God's people are to live alongside one another and be that reflection of who he is, be a witness to him to the watching world, you're dragging a brother or sister from your community into a place where your false testimony might result in their death. That's the doomsday end of the line. But equally, everything short of that that would take us in that direction is included in this commandment. That takes us out a step, if you're following. Point number three, God's people are to be truthful in all contexts. Now, I'm going to assume that most people in this room are probably most comfortable with this step. So we're going to be here the briefest. But I want you to be freshly reminded about what the ripple effect of this commandment looks like as you work through the Bible. So again, here's four verses that just summarize something of the Bible's teaching on this. Leviticus 19 16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. You see, this commandment doesn't just mean swearing that something is true in court when it's not. It means broadly the way that you handle truth with and about one another. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord, Proverbs 12, 22. The Lord detests lying lips. 
but he delights in people who are trustworthy. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And as John is given his vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the one who is seated upon the throne puts the significance of all of this in context. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Lying is as sinful in the boardroom and the changing room as it is in the courtroom. And all unrepentant liars. All unrepentant liars will face a more devastating judgment than we could even imagine because of how serious it is to lie. God's people are to be truthful in all contexts. And that gets us to the next circle. And I want us to spend a bit more time here. God's people are to be truthful to all people. Look back at verse 16. God doesn't just say you shall not give false testimony. He says you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And if you look up and down in the Ten Commandments, this is the first time there's reference to your neighbor in the Ten Commandments. So who's our neighbor? There are plenty of times as you work through the Bible where God uses that word to describe to somebody who is very close to you, either family-wise or geographically. So you go back to chapter 3 in Exodus, and God told the Israelites to speak to their Egyptians who were their neighbors and ask them for the gold and the silver and the clothing as they plundered the Egyptians. A little bit later, you get to chapter 12, and God gives his people the commandments for the Passover. And he says to the Israelites, if, if, you're, if you're too small a household to be able to have a lamb to prepare for the, to, for the festival, then share with your neighbor, meaning that those people who are closest to you. So, of course, there are times when it means narrowly the people who are closest to you. But the word's regularly used to speak much more broadly than that, isn't it? That's what I was thinking when I was getting ahead of myself with Jesus, given the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and there you've got the Jewish lawyer who comes to him and he wants to know, how do I keep the Jewish law? So I know the Jewish law could be summarized by you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus taking the Ten Commandments, which are themselves a summary of all of the law in the Old Testament and helping us understand what in essence all of those commandments are teaching. So the Jewish lawyer goes, well, who's my neighbor then if I'm to love my neighbor as myself? And if you've never asked that question, come speak to me afterwards. I'll take you to an amazing story in the Bible where Jesus upends all of the ways that these Jewish people would have thought of their neighbors and says, your neighbor is the person you meet who acts in a loving way. There are these people that the Jews hated called the Samaritans. But it was the Samaritan in the parable who was a loving neighbor 
to a Jew who was in trouble. So here's Jesus saying that your neighbor is whomever you come into contact with who you can bless. If you go back to Exodus 20, that makes complete sense of the two references to the neighbor in the Ten Commandments. So if you look at verse 17, we're going to get there next week, Lord willing, look at who and what we're not to covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Who's the neighbor in verse 17? God doesn't intend us to read that narrowly. God's not saying in verse 17, you're not to covet your immediate neighbor's possessions, but you're okay to covet your enemy's wife or a foreigner's house. It means anybody who you come into contact with. You're not allowed to have that heart of covetousness. And I think that's exactly the way that we should read verse 16. Who are we not to give false testimony to? Anyone and everyone. Now, if you've read anything about Christian ethics, you will know that that's not a position that every evangelical Bible-believing Christian would take. Some Christians would say that there are circumstances where you're not required to always tell the truth. And they would look particularly at this word, neighbor, and say that its inclusion in the commandment is a reminder to us that this obligation is only in relation to your neighbor. I think verse 17 helps us see that's perhaps not the most helpful way to see that. But their argument would be that there are specific circumstances, albeit very, very rare circumstances, where you're not required or you don't have to tell the truth. So perhaps the most commonly cited uh, illustration would be in the Second World War. Imagine that you or your family are hiding Jews in your house to protect them from the Nazis. And Nazi soldiers knock down the door, barge into your house and shout, Are you hiding any Jews? Some would say that those Nazi soldiers have forfeited the right to be considered your neighbor such that you don't need to tell them the truth. That their plan to hurt and harm means that you don't have an obligation to protect, sorry, to, to tell them the truth and not their false testimony. Do you, see, do you see the question? And it's a really important question, isn't it? It might be a rare question because, Lord willing, very few of us will ever be in that circumstance, but it's a real question. And our Bible-believing brothers and sisters who'd hold that view would look at a number of stories throughout the Bible where they would say that deception, lying happens and God responds in such a way that we should see him approving of lying in rare circumstances. So perhaps two of the most common examples would be the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1 and Rahab and the way that she lied to protect the spies. And they, we are told, would be examples where, as God commends Rahab's faith in Hebrews 11 and James 2, and as God blesses the midwives and gives them their own families, 
They're examples of God approving of lying in exceptional circumstances. And on the basis of those passages and others, some would say God is showing us that there are exceptional circumstances in which it is acceptable to lie. Now, we haven't got time to dig into all of the detail, but it is really important if this is a question that's going around in your mind that you make the time to do that reading. So please contact me during this week. I've got resources scanned and ready to share with you the best of the arguments on both of those sides so that you can see how men and women are trying to handle God's word faithfully and answer that question. Personally, I'm persuaded that it is never right to lie. I think Augustine and the whole of, well, sorry, forgive me, the majority of the church throughout history are right to say that there are no exceptions to the ninth commandment as there are no exceptions to any of the commandments. I think there are faithful ways of reading the stories of the midwives and Rahab and other instances that show us that what is being commended is not the lie, but the courageous act of faith. We're commanded not to give false testimony, but that doesn't mean we always have to say everything that we know to be true. So, given the complexity of the world in which we live, what could we do instead? If you're in one of those dire circumstances, what do you do? Well, there's perhaps three things that you could think of. One would be to pray that God would inspire you to say something that is honest but not revealing. Secondly, that he would give you the courage to remain silent. Or thirdly, that even as you speak the truth, he acts in ways you could never have imagined. Think about each of those three very briefly. How do you say something honest but unrevealing? I was reading this week uh, the story of a Mennonite called Hans Buscher, who was being chased down by enemies who wanted to capture and harm him. He was traveling in a cart, this is a number of years ago, um, and when the cart was caught... Hans stood up with his pursuers surrounding the cart with other people in it. Hans stood up and said, is Hans Buscher sitting in this cart? Of course the answer was no, because he was standing. There are ways we can be honest without being revealing. Other times there are ways to be courageously silent. And I say courageous because sometimes the cost of that silence may result, if you're in that situation with Jews you're seeking to hide and protect in your home, it may result in them being captured. It may result in you being captured. It may result in you being tortured or killed struck as we were thinking about the Lord's Supper this morning, that in all sorts of much greater ways, our Lord Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter and was silent before his accusers and entrusted himself to him who judges 
justly. But sometimes we are to speak truthfully and witness God doing the miraculous. That's what God did in the life of Betsy Ten Boom, Corrie's sister. They were one of those families who did exactly what I've just been describing. They courageously hid Jews in their home. And in their particular house, what they'd done was they'd dug a space under their dining table so that they could hide people under the floor. They covered it with a trapdoor. And Ten Boom's family had got a Jewish family staying with them. But Betsy had made a covenant in her mind years before that she would never, ever tell a lie. And one day that commitment was to be tested. The uh, soldiers burst into their home and they demanded to know whether there were any Jews in the house. And Betsy responded by instinct. But it was an instinct that had been shaped by a conviction that had become an ingrained habit over her life. She said, yes, they're under the table. And the soldier thought she was mocking him. He could look at the table. He could see that there was nobody under there who's furious and outraged that a girl would speak up against him in all of his might and authority and mock him in front of all of his fellow soldiers because clearly there wasn't anybody under the table. And in a courageous way, truth-telling Betsy saves the life of all of that family. Now, God does not promise that he will always respond in that incredible way. There will be times when instead we are called to silence and that will be costly. There will be times when we need to respond in ways that are truthful but unrevealing. But God's promise is that as we are faithful to keeping his commandment, he will build the faith of his people. And all of that prepares us for the last thing. You see, this truth-telling in all places to all people is going to be pointing all the time to God. We saw that at the very beginning, didn't we? That one of the many ways in which God's people would be so different is that they would speak differently and truthfully and honestly with one another. It would be one of the means by which God would bring in all of the other nations to see the God of the Old Testament people. Well, what does it mean then for us to be image bearers of God in the new covenant? Ultimately, point number five, God's people are to be faithful witnesses to Jesus. Who do we see Jesus to be in the New Testament. If you're brand new to church, if you're exploring Christianity for the very first time, how does the Bible describe who Jesus is? At the very beginning of his ministry, Luke tells us 
that all spoke well of him, Jesus, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Later on in his ministry, as Peter began to understand who Jesus was, he said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Here is God made man. We call that incarnate. He took on flesh. He's revealing to us who God is. And we are seeing in the person of Jesus someone whose words are always good and true and trustworthy. Even to the extent that Jesus himself would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See what a unique claim on truth Jesus shows us that he has. Because he is the son of God who has stepped into the world, he is not only speaking truthfully, giving us an example in how we should be speaking to others, he uniquely is the truth. And then what does he tell his disciples? After he has died on the cross, been raised to life, before he ascends into heaven, one of the very last things the disciples hear is Jesus say, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why does it matter that we always tell the truth? Because we are to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one who can pay the penalty for all of our sin, including every single lie we have ever told. The only one who can give us a righteousness we don't deserve. Because we have spoken against. We have undermined. We have gossiped. We have falsely accused. We have jumped to conclusions on the basis of all of those things. Jesus came to not only speak truth, but to give you and me the only way to be forgiven for all the untruth we have ever said. So as we come to the supper this morning, I hope you've seen something of the horror of the sin of lying. For all that it does to deface the truthfulness of God and the damage that it does in our community and the way that it hinders the way that we show a watching world what it is to be people who have been made and redeemed by a God who is always truthful. But as we're confronted with the ugliness of that sin, I want you to fix your eyes on the one who is truth. Because he suffered for every lie that you confess to him. 